Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at The Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. Today, I'm joined in the writer's studio by Michael Peterson, whose new book, Boyfriends, is a profoundly personal, searingly honest examination of grief, inspired by the death of Scott Hutchison, the author's dearest friend and artistic co-conspirator. Although heartbreaking at moments, Boyfriends is by no means a depressing book. In fact, it's funny and tender and insightful, as well as an authentic and touching quest to give voice to the maelstrom of emotions such a devastating loss provokes. It's also an examination of male friendship and the difficulties many of us have expressing the love that underpins them, having been brought up in societies that minimise or mock such emotions. I'm delighted to say that Michael Peterson joins us today to discuss it. Michael, welcome to Shakespeare and Company. Thank you very much, Adam. It's a true delight to be here. It's a real pleasure to have you back. Of course, we recorded something with you last November, which November. went out on the podcast in February, yeah. I think. Yeah. And um, at the time, you, you told me about this 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 upcoming book and um, I remember just being sort of fascinated by the idea of it but also thinking immediately god that's not the kind of book anyone is ever going to want to write yeah um could you talk a little bit about the moment that you realized after the passing of Scott that you were going to apprehend and articulate that loss through words and, in particular, through through a book? So, um, I would say laconically, it happened entirely by accident, mm-hmm. as many of the best things do. It was very much a wayward literary scavenge. I was already booked to go into the Curfew Tower in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland, this really incredible art space on the coast of Northern Ireland in a wee place called Cushendall, mm-hmm. owned by artist, provocateur, former KLF frontman Bill Drummond, also author. Yes, um, indeed of a couple of incredible books. So I was booked to go in there in, you know, the hard summer month of July. Um, and the intention was, the sort of raison d'etre of that little residency was to write my third poetry collection. Mm. Obviously, about five or six weeks before that happened, Scott passed. And it felt like a lifetime down to, I guess, a click of the fingers mm-hmm. that found me dealing with the throbbing emotional heat and trauma of that lost the juxtaposition of him being here to him not to then opening the door of the curfew tower Mm -hmm. and in one way it was terrifying after being around all of these beautiful consoling faces to then be on my own in solitude in this place that i didn't know anyone really um but at the same time i realized it was a brilliant opportunity to just steep in the friendship that Mm -hmm. i just lost all the magic moments of it because as tragic an ending as uh, it was and as nascently it was plucked from this world, 
it was punctuated by joy and mm -hmm. humor and silliness and smuttiness and yes, really sentimental, sensual moments. But really, it was it was laughter that permeated this friendship. So I went to this tower with the intention of steeping in the memories of this friendship and probably to write poems about them. And then almost by impulse or compulsion, found myself diarizing the recent road trip I'd mm -hmm. been on with Scott, I guess in a desperate attempt to make sure I didn't forget any of the details of it. Sure. Um, it had been sort of usurped by the painful acknowledgement of having to deal with his death afterwards. But prior to that, I'd had three or four of the, the best days of my life. Yeah, this yeah, yeah. So I wanted to make sure that the sort of beauty and exuberance of that experience didn't get lost. Uh, I mean, I, I know your brain is capable of covering over painful mm -hmm. memories, hiding away from uh, them from you. And I felt that that was maybe at risk of being mm -hmm. a memory that was um, purloined from me by my by my own, I guess, cognitive protective functions, my old, the, the older big brother in your, in your cerebral apparatus. <laughs> so I wanted to take it back on my terms and I found the more I invested in those memories, the more details that unfurled themselves, almost like a hyper detail. And it became such a fascinating obsession to, to sort of explore the unexplored terrains of your memories and, and just prove to yourself how much you could really remember the, the heightened version of detail that you could implant into your own memories if you really just steeped in them. Um, and it became an obsession. Every morning I would get up and I would write a about a different part of that road trip and then very quickly that triggered me into revisiting some of my favourite memories with yeah, Scott yeah, across yeah. all the years of the friendships, uh, particularly this huge tour we did of South, South Africa, animal safaris mm -hmm. and road trips together. And really, I mean, and revisiting our friendship, we did a lot of eating. We ate a lot, <laughs> ate a lot of meals. That comes across, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a real sort of culinary twist to the book, which I think... Yeah, a lot of seafood, which is unexpected at that point in time. <laughs> um, so it became this accidental scavenge into my own friendship. And the more the friendship with Scott taught me about this myself, the more I sort of developed a hunger and an appetite to try and understand previous versions of right. myself and all of these boyhood friendships of my um, of, of my younger years. Because to understand the version of myself that was in this really love-filled beautiful friendship with Scott, I had to understand, I guess, the miswirings and the blunders mm -hmm. of previous friendships, which had empowered me to, I guess, give all I could to this particular friendship. So it was this huge um, annal, this huge document of of friendship that I produced and just kept growing and mm -hmm. growing and growing. And I, I didn't think it would ever become a book in its own right because I'd only written poetry books up until that point. So naturally, I assumed this huge document of friendship would become this, um, I guess, piece of literary apparatus that I would then draw poems mm -hmm. out of and sculpt poems out of at a later date. Um, so I just wrote with no intention or no ambition to published this as a piece of prose at that point in time and just kept growing this gargantuan feast of, of, of I guess, friendship archives. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I did eventually try and visit them to sculpt them, or I guess in some stages uh, manipulate them into mm -hmm. poems, it just downright refused. Right. I, I found myself with an obdurate opponent that just said, <laughs> no, you've found me in prose, you've created me in prose, I'm staying this way, I will yeah. not become those poems. Uh and then I realised that perhaps that was a book. Yeah, because that is the thing, is that it feels like very much like 
not only a collection of memories, but a document of a particular time, which is this stay in, in Northern Ireland that you talk about, and also a little bit of time following that. Um, and I'm very curious about this, this idea of memory. Um, I remember when I interviewed um, Carlo Wiknausgaard about his kind of six volume, <laughs> My Struggle memoir. Yeah. And one of the things he said early on in that interview was, oh, I don't have a very good memory. Yeah. Um, but you get the impression that once you find the thread and you start pulling, mm. suddenly these these memories unfurl from uh, from from your mind. Now, from the way you've just described it, we have the impression that it was the friendship with Scott which gave rise to these memories kind of coming out. And yet in the book, at least the way it's structured, we almost we don't really get to know Scott properly until maybe the second half mm -hmm. of the book. And it feels like there's a lot of sort of circling in a way mm. of the the events of your life and the events of this particular friendship. Was it as you described, like Scott gave rise to the memories, or did these were these memories a useful way in a sense to allow you to circle and ultimately get to the friendship with Scott? Yeah, it was definitely sort of unexplored terrain. Mm -hmm. um, I was developing all these stories in quite an erratic fashion. Um, if a favourite memory I was writing about with Scott would lead me off on some aberration into a favourite childhood memory mm -hmm. that I felt I needed to understand to empower that moment with Scott, I would write that piece next in this big sort of wild and unruly mind map. Um, so by the time that I felt that I'd written everything I had to say for this particular narrative, which didn't obviously have a narratorial arc from the outset and was just a, I guess, a jumble sale of little images and pieces of flash prose and prose poetry and diary style mm -hmm. entries, it was quite a formidable task to think how that would work <laughs> together in a book because it wasn't written chronologically, it wasn't written by friendship, mm -hmm. by human being, it was just this real hodgepodge of little stream of consciousness mm -hmm. style thoughts on friendship. So we maybe went through like nine manifestations of the book. The book, wow. the content in the book was written quite quickly. And then the structural um, wrestle mm -hmm. to turn it into something which would be an enjoyable experience for a reader was really the, the main work of it all. Uh -huh. And we went through quite a few different manifestations. Obviously, the, the road trip, the immediate story with Scott was the first thing I wrote. Mm -hmm. And I wrote those little curfew tower entries as a medium to then dive back into the road trip because it sometimes seemed like too daunting a task to get yeah. straight into the emotional heat of it. Um, but I didn't feel like I could open the book with that, uh -huh. even though that was the first thing it was written because that was written from a place of understanding but also a place of pain and mm -hmm. a place of grief and a place of shock and that was sort of disingenuous to the friendship I've had with Scott which mm -hmm. was the stilly silly stories and uh, and and the voyages and the explorations and uh, you know the ameliorating myself as a sentient male friend to another friend there was all of that stuff that came before to so to start with this loss mm -hmm. it seemed disingenuous to the to the story and the chronology yeah, yeah, of our yeah. friendship also I guess I wanted to, you to know how much it meant to me by the time the loss occurred. Mm -hmm. And if we'd went straight into it, that wasn't that wasn't really going to be the case. Yeah. I mean, pe people would definitely sympathise that a friend was losing another friend. But I wanted you to understand all of the fleshy, emotionally sloppy, blundering, oversharing <laughs> episodes I'd went through to get to this point where I'd finally found this friendship, which was, you know, the... 
the almost paradigm of what exactly I'd been looking for yeah. to, to understand the heat of what you'd lost and the gargantuan task that lay ahead and trying to, you know, recontextualize who you were without it at that yeah. point in time. Um, so I wanted you to be buttressed and fortified by silliness and joy <laughs> and love and fully sort of invested in your your own friendship history I, mm-hmm. I hope that it's impossible to read through some of this book without thinking of some friends that you've mm-hmm. had that maybe don't fit the molds of these people but definitely relate to them or remind you of them or For send sure. you off on little cognitive daydreams about about friends who've you know punctuated or embodied your life in yeah, that way yeah yeah and that's the thing i think it's really important this structure you talked about because we get to learn what kind of a friend you are and how friendships have manifested in your life uh, up to the point when you when you met Scott. One. Dinner with you and Holly. These are palmary moments. No, I don't regret spending £75 on a seafood sharing platter. I. It's a crumb indulgent, and you call me a lush to Holly's hilarity, but we are twinned in this bonhomie. I do not regret us gorging ourselves on a platter, boasting an estimated 40 mussels, 60 prawn tails, 6 gargantuan langoustines, 12 scallops and a heft of dipping bread. A platter most definitely intended for filling more than two bellies. Of course, there is wine. We would not do a meal such as this a disservice and be without it. The platter is its own constellation. It does not fit on the table, for its circumference is akin to Jupiter, not decommissioned Pluto. You and Holly have to swap seats so as we can battle this formidable foe together in formation. We are leviathans feasting with and on each other. The messy display attracts nods of reverence from onlookers populating the tables in orbit around us. These nods are a cloud of praise, comfortably taken. This comfort in taking praise is far too rare for brilliant you. Over yonder, the island of sky sits down to tea with us. We address it in stories and long glances cast over. On Google Maps, this water is labelled Inner Seas off the west coast of Scotland, Atlantic Ocean, a very formal name for our salty guest, the ghost at the table. Whilst eating the platter, there is a dearth of chatter. It is given way to unwavering dedication. Let it be known, this is not portentous. It is the opposite, the gooey vim of not needing chit-chat. We are apples, here's our core, sprouting pips in every belly. Even vegetarian Holly sucks a muscle down. But shh, don't tell her family, or she'll never hear the end of it. This supper was garlic butter gorgeous. Love on its tiptoes, the last meal we had together and one of your last on this whizzing planet. It isn't quite fit for purpose, but I surmise you'd chip in with Michael. It wasn't far off either. P.S. Yes, we ordered starters and all, but these were modest and too alluring to let pass by. The pudding you shared with Holly was one step beyond for me, but you looked cherubic splitting it, and you were often one step ahead. 
PPS. By the time the £149.50 plus £20 cash tip cleared from my bank account, three days later you had left us and something had left me. But right there, in that moment, we were brimful. It was love. 2. You can't be dead because we are still on holiday because my brain is still processing the images of the last few days from short-term to long-term memories, and I've not yet shown anyone the pictures from our trip. I've not yet shown anyone the pictures from our trip, because I am not yet home from our trip, so you can't be dead. The ink is still wet on the page, so there's no way the book's gone up in flames. You can't be dead, because we're still mid-conversation on a hundred relatively inconsequential things, and we're about to pick these conversations back up and finish the suckers off like we said we would, because your litter is still in the back of the car. Because the moon is the same shape as the moon we feasted under and there's rainwater in my hair from that sudden downpour that caught us out and I've not yet emptied the sand out of my shoes and I'm still full of adrenaline from all the fun we had, no, are having and my face hasn't stopped throbbing from the laughter clouds we created and there's that daft sauce stain on my jeans yet to be washed out. You can't be dead because I just got an email about our arrival time from Ullapool Book Festival, and I know the answer to that question, and I don't want to let them down. 3. Defying all science, grief feels its hottest when newly lit, before it's even started smoking, before the birds know to stop singing and be forever silent, before the embargo on mooting a date for the funeral's been lifted, before one of my friends knows not to throw a strop because I haven't got back to his invite for a camping trip that needs the numbers, before any notion of talking in the past tense is fathomable, before Auden's poem, Stop All the Clocks, could possibly be about you, feels like a drug that's newly entered the body and will deliberately dawdle in making the rounds. Inside, like a virus, the flesh bullying itself, my vital organs like two best friends who've for no real reason fallen out, yet on account of their hubris will never find a way back. Grief dissects us into the most helpless matter. My bones carry an unnatural weight in them, as if the marrow is turning to lead. My gait too is off, like that bike with its bent wheel that required me to cycle like fuck just to make it to market less than two miles away. I am on the cusp of crying, ordering a cappuccino, but as for chocolate sprinkles all the same, because that's what I used to do, although I've no idea why, because I've never had a sweet tooth. I am desperate for touch, then offended by the suggestion I find myself looking into my own eyes in every mirror I pass, eyes which have become bells that will not stop ringing until the jar cracks or the tongue falls out. Either way, it'll be over. It's been clumsy with meaning after having prided myself on exactitude, where a hundred and forty characters seems a stretch. It feels like I've had my last useful thought, and now I'm salvaging ideas from the mulch. Time is standing still until it races by like a cat with a bird in its belly. Mostly, I feel exhausted, slow and eddying, 
heavier whilst emptied of something I know will never be replenished, that I will always resent living without. I am heartbroken and coarse whilst acutely thankful for all the wonderful people around me. I feel important and guilty about it. Um, let's talk a little bit about this concept of friendship and I think particularly male friendship because mm. um, one thing that we, we've realised while reading Boyfriends is actually how this is a concept which is so little talked about, at least in, 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 in the West, in sort of in, in Anglophone and in European mm. writing. This is almost something which we're, we're really shy about. And at a moment you say, and I'm going to paraphrase you here, but like something about the sort of our, um, the ways in which we manifest our affection for our male friends seems to come through some sort of aggression or violence. That seems to be the kind of the mm. accepted way to, uh, to, to say that we love our, our friends. Mm-hmm. And that's never seemed to be the way that your friendships worked right from the beginning. Do you think it's, there's something particular about the way you entered into friendships that allowed you ultimately to write this book yeah i mean i i think notions of masculinity are always tied so much into more notions of romantic sexuality but notions of masculinity are in many ways more um saliently formed through the male friendships that we encounter when we're young and if we've got older siblings we might have seen older brothers Mm -hmm. and them fathers or uncles or these sort of elder male figures almost bequeath upon us the structures of their sentient male friendships. And especially from where I was coming from, there wasn't a sensuality or a physicality to any of the elder male friendships I saw around me. And I had a big sister, not a big Mm -hmm. brother. And the female friendships that I saw inhabiting my life that was almost sort of voyeuristically purveying were very physical. They were linking arms, they were sharing beds, staying up uh, late at night gossiping on stories. Um, They were holding hands sometimes, Mm -hmm. walking down the street, and it was just seen as this really beautiful sort of emotional vocabulary. It Mm -hmm. was a reflection of the physicality of the friendship that manifested in them. And I didn't see that going on around the males around me, and I was very envious of me. So I've definitely had a hazard-filled obstacle course to try and create those type of friendships in my life. I think I would very easily scare off the type of male friends that were, were... felt a discomfort or a a repellence at Mm. times from that. And and on a higher level, you would sometimes get, you know, social exclusion and and homophobic slurs for trying to engage in those type of friendships. On a lower level, when friends were just still finding their comfort zone with it, you would maybe get playful mockery or parodies of it. Like the physical male friendship was not one. But Mm. I think people that have had these physical friendships learn so much more about you know, the the vocabulary of the body, ways of consent, where consensual friendly touching stops and romantics touching starts. Mm -hmm. It puts you in this really empowering and sort of sapient position to see how you want romantic relationships to ferment out of that. But they're not a a stepping stone to the next one. They are their own sort of form of, of, of education. And I think a lot of it for me in the book especially, manifests in this notion of going into this sort of fishing tackle shop yeah, um, and earning a right away to go on of these, these trips, this whole trope of gone fishing, was all of a sudden creating a space for these males that I was surrounded by in school who wouldn't dare utter too much about their emotions, would all of a sudden feel 
comfortable to mm. do so or they feel like they'd have the almost like the emotional passport to go into those terrains because they were away up in the campestral vastness they were in nature there was time to make the mistakes uh, and the blunders conversationally they could have met too much and it could be covered over yeah. in fact in certain cases I was warned that they would uh, physically deny it if, right. uh, if I would then bring it up under other circumstances um, and I was maybe too naive or maybe just too uh, I guess emotionally vivacious to understand that it was about the safe space like yeah. of course they couldn't have these conversations at school because it was judgment from peers it was shame it was you know they were still test running a lot of these emotional mm. co concepts so there was this weird formula to male friendships circling around us in these big inner city schools and and elsewhere but i guess that was my direct experience which I really had to learn to navigate and I navigated mm -hmm. it very badly. Mm -hmm. Given too much, too fast a lot of the time, <laughs> people sort of withdrawing or winding away around right. there, finding a mockery into it. Well, there's but, one moment where your mother says to you, I think it's your mother says, you feel too much. Yeah. And that's a sort of, I guess that could have been one of the, <laughs> I think, I one think, of the difficulties. I think that was a very generous way of her <laughs> saying, just, you know, take take a gauge of yeah. how much you're giving and the circumstances in it. But she had a very, you know, mother cat sapient understanding of what was going on. <laughs> mother to the cat prince, you know, when I was convinced I was a feline for a good period of boyhood because yes. they were much more sensitive. Listen to future. the previous podcast where you read a poem about that, in yeah. fact. <laughs> Name checked. Um so yeah, I guess um that was her sort of generous way of saying, you know, take note and mm -hmm. slow down. Um and but I found years later, as we got on a lot of these boys that maybe recoiled at the emotional um, velocitude that I was traveling at, then saw me as a safe pair of hands mm -hmm. to like invest in very private conversations. So what became a bit of a sticking point then mm -hmm. became this real privilege that yeah, I yeah, was yeah. the, the go-to for these deep, trying, traumatic emotional, sometimes, you know, lovely mm -hmm. experiences. I was the, the confidant um, yeah. all of a sudden. So what became quite a pariah, pariah situation, almost full circled on it. Um, as we became teenagers and people mm -hmm. had a bit more of an emotional intelligence around them, uh, there was still the immaturity that a lot of people carry, sometimes passed down to them about dealing with their emotions. And I probably still carried a lot of juvenilia and was very naive about how easy these male friendships should have been. Yeah. Um, but I was glad of that naivety in the long run, yeah, I think. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, a lot of people would be quite surprised, I guess. I, 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 like many boys who, you know, wrote poetry and was very forthright with their emotions, would have got labelled someone that was in touch with their feminine side. Right, and yeah. it's like, so why are you the ones writing about masculinity? Uh -huh. And it's like, probably because we were led to believe we failed at masculinity. Yeah. You know, and we, our inability to conform to the masculine paradigm mm -hmm. is something which has shaped us, which we've been trying to manoeuvre back mm -hmm. into. And there's this whole thing of reclaiming that form yeah, of yeah, yeah. sentient masculinity now uh, on our terms, because to ignore it and to label it feminine or elsewhere or outside of masculinity or beyond the pale is to then leave masculinity in the wrong hands. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's to leave people conforming to a stereotype which they themselves probably don't foolheartedly believe mm -hmm. in, but it's a crutch. It's an ability. Yeah. Here's the formula. 
obey the rules and you will conform and the risk of social exclusion or hurt or shame is lower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the, the, the kind of the, the point that Simone de Beauvoir makes in the final pages of The Second Sex, that sort of the patriarchy is as damaging and imprisoning to men as it is to women because it's sort of it it gives this kind of fixed role for men to be and in which to express themselves. And I would wager the vast majority of men don't fit or don't fit well into into that yeah that mold. I think very few people ever do fit well into the mold. It's just they've they've had it enforced on mm. them or dictated at them or there's a fear or trepidation to break out of it or they've not had any guidance in how to do that. Uh, the number of people even re- reading little snippets from the book is incredible. I get a lot of people come up to have to be but a lot of the time people are saying I need to buy this for my brother. Uh-huh. I need to buy this for my friend. Um so it's all often it's somebody wanting to have this conversation with someone about this rigorous rules of masculinity that they think is, you know, knotting their belly, knotting yeah. their their emotive consciousness. So it's really beautiful to see that the book is potentially going to be used as a token to have yeah. these conversations yeah. Yeah, without yeah. having to directly jump into it to see if it will trigger that conversation mm-hmm. to explain why they've got them under yeah. those circumstances. So that sort of secondary emotional compass is is a really great way to do it it's like when a lot of people when i see people give matt Haid books especially mm. the midnight library because all of a sudden this really accomplished mental health writing and life guide life guidance writing and you know cognitive function and check in on yourself mm-hmm. they'll write him was fictionalized yeah and then people could give it to someone and say look this is a fictional story it's not me necessarily giving you a direct mental health book uh-huh. it's me telling you you need to check in on this or you benefit from this it's a story and the mental health lessons the sapience is sort of hidden in this fabular nature of it and maybe that's a way for us to get into this conversation secondary to that so I think those are really interesting avenues for hopefully literature to be venturing down into. Yeah, I'm interested by the the choice of title. Obviously, it's a it's a it's a really it's a really nice pun on mm-hmm. what you're writing about. But there's also something I think kind of provocative about it, in as much as I suppose we I think we've in Britain at least we've inherited from America. Um, women will quite openly talk about their girlfriends, mm-hmm. meaning you know the the group of friends who are the group of women friends. But men haven't picked up the same the, the same terminology. Like to talk about my boyfriends yeah. would immediately imply uh, a romantic relationship. Yeah. But on another level, it also implies, I guess, a not exactly a juvenility, but a, a youth to the friendship, a kind of a maturing uh, from childhood to adolescence and into into manhood. And there's sort of I don't know. There's something um, something very specific about the term boy rather than man in this in this context. Yeah. So could you just talk a little bit about your the choice of title and why it felt like the right one for what specifically what you're writing about? So the title was the last thing to come, and uh, I actually didn't even come up with it myself. Right. <laughs> it is a it's accredited to Holly McNish. Um, so we were t- fleshing out ideas for a while and I was talking about some of my frustrations to find a title that matched that because mm-hmm. there was, I wanted it to hark back to boyhood, to mm-hmm. childhood, because we were these little emotional engines at that point in time. And I just feel like we're trying to recapture the daringness to emotionally invest in people that fast and that quickly. So I wanted it to be harking back to childhood 
And just the notion of boyfriends immediately ask questions of us. We've not mm -hmm. seen that together um, as two separate words. In fact, Microsoft Word will pull it up as a grammatical error. Yeah. Girlfriends separately is two things. It understands the cultural currency of those two mm -hmm. words together. So we've got two words here which are very simple, but they're almost not translatable at yeah. this stage because... You can translate those into French or Spanish, like uh, Nino Hombres, and then they're gendered, a lot mm -hmm. of the secondary words. But to have an ungendered boy and friends alongside each other, which carries something that's not romantic, yet invests in the youth and the exuberance of the relationship, is a real, I guess, penumbra of language mm -hmm. at this point in time. And just, it's, it's provoking. I mean, we wanted it to be a provocation of itself, like already... People obviously ask, well, is this, um, is this homosexual literature? Is this erotic literature? Is it about previous romantic relationships? Um, and it's already got them asking questions. Plus, it arrives in a sparkly fuchsia sheen. Um, <laughs> I'm aware of the fact there'll be a lot of people, and it has two males embracing on the front of the cover, and they could be lovers, they could be friends staggering home, mm -hmm. they could be in a moment of reverie looking up at the stars, they could be drunk, you know, spilling out a pub. Um, and it's how comfortable are you publicly exhibiting this mm -hmm. thing that that, that that talks about male friendship. Um, and if you are comfortable with it, what way in did you find mm -hmm. yourself there? So I felt like it was such, it was two very simple words, which everybody knows and identifies with, that immediately have a tension and a juxtaposition. But alongside that, I think they have a synergy and a sort of romanticism being placed alongside each other like that. So it's all often telling if people think that they seem like hostile words together yeah. or whether they seem like words that are sort of swooning over each uh -huh. other. Uh, and hopefully it is, it is the latter. There is a romance in there. But yeah, I wanted a very simple title that was inviting as possible with, mm -hmm. uh, with the bit that would immediately arrive laden with questions yeah. and it's like two words that I could write you know a 2000 word essay mm -hmm. on based on how they react to each other and spark off each other because I think they very much do spark off each other yeah 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 just from the kind of book selling perspective a part of me wonders actually if Faber now should do a bit like uh, Bloomsbury did with Harry Potter have like the standard edition and then the one that adults could read without feeling embarrassed on the train yeah. maybe sort of they should do another edition for those people who perhaps the book would be very useful for and very important for, but yeah. perhaps, as you say, might be put off a little bit by yeah by the the provocative cover. So let's. Uh, I think that's the beauty of the hardback. You can whip off the dust. There jacket. you go. <laughs> <laughs> and it is it is craftily down the spine, but it's uh -huh. a nice clear front cover. It is purple. You're going to be have to have to be comfortable <laughs> with a zesty purple, but um, I don't think that's too much to ask under yeah, the circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's um let's talk about Scott then, um because this is. Uh, um, as well as all the other things we talked about, this is a book about and essentially for Scott, in a sense. Um, there is a moment when um, you talk about the uh, the writing of the book mm -hmm. and you say, um, uh, in fact, you're talking about, I think it's a, a, a new edition of your the books that you collaborated on. Mm -hmm. And you uh, you said, I do not want a new edition of the book, but my friend back. You do not keep living through these pages. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about your your relationship with Scott, how it evolved in the memorialising of it? Was it was it something whose meaning you were fully aware of 
in the heat of it before his passing? Mm -hmm. Or was it something whose deep importance to you became particularly clear only in that memorialising of it? I think I knew how important the friendship Uh was to me. I think it buoyed me up every day. Um, I think we had developed a current and a currency and emotional vocabulary mm. to let each other know how much this friendship meant to us uh, and because of the busyness of both our lifestyles as well we definitely had to fight for moments mm. and trips together uh, there was a lot of schedules we weren't involved in the same enterprises Scots band to come all over the world into the rehearsal rooms on sort of mega three month tours at times um and my life is very much more sporadic shows all up and down mm. the country. So anytime we found ourselves together, we very much fought for it. Um, but this definitely wasn't a book about who Scott was in a band or as mm-hmm. a singer. This isn't the Frightened Rabbit book, far from it. I think if someone was looking for the Frightened Rabbit book, well, there is one out there. That's the one they want. This was almost the opposite. It's who Scott was as a friend through my own lens. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought he was such an incredible friend. Uh, it was the sort of dream friend that I was looking for. It was almost an iric and dreamy sometimes to be in his company. And, and I remember just being giddy with the notion that I don't think there's any social situation that couldn't be improved by him being in it. <laughs> and I didn't have any, it was disparate as the social circles I, cre- I keep were. There wasn't any that I didn't feel I could bring him into, that he wouldn't be welcomed mm-hmm. into. Um, and I'd always been questing for these sort of friendships um, that just completely consumed you. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'd found one which was, as well as being all-consuming, was really creatively conducive to me because he was setting a, a standard that I aspired to in yeah. terms of a writer and also just as a sort of loving, sentient human being. So he was setting a creative and a moral standard um, that was just incredible to be around mm-hmm. and bask in at those point in time. So initially when, I guess it's, it's almost in a pistols type form, uh-huh. like it is, there is letter elements of it. It allowed me to keep speaking to Scott mm-hmm. um, and to continue a lot of the conversations that I felt like we weren't done having. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also I felt that it was unfair that I got to revisit all these memories with so much glorious <laughs> splendor that I, I feel like... I should involve him in the let in the writing process of it on the on the off chance that he can perhaps uh, eavesdrop on some yes. of them as well, or there'll just be a realization about how much these these moments went to me. So it was a it was an ability to keep talking to him at a time where I needed to keep talking to him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and more and more as I went into the writing, it was an ability for me to use this friendship I had with Scott to try and. Um, without sounding too cliched, inspire other friends to almost in a call to action style form to honour the friendships that they have in their life. If that is the one thing that I could use all of these memories of my friendship with Scott to do is to inspire other friends to just celebrate the joy in what they've created together because it felt so romantic. You know, I felt like when I'd lost friends... I'd, I'd been broken up with in uh-huh. the same way. I mourned them, I grieved them in the same way I mourned or grieved loves. Yeah. Um, and, and I didn't see it as chemically or mm. physically or, or emotionally any, any different from some of these real vested romantic relationships that have all became all-consuming into my life. But people ask about friendships so rarely in comparison. Two friends walk into the room, nobody asks how you met yeah, or yeah, what yeah. your sort of what your past story is, how did you get together? Mm. It's, it's, it's so unknown. And, and if you've got 
these small emotionally charged friendships, which I guess I've done at this point in time. Um, we're all still quite young, so lifelong friends that you've kept through high school are, are trickier because you've become different versions mm-hmm, of sure. yourselves. And I found myself fascinated by these like really intense, quite ephemeral friendships mm-hmm. of a couple of years at a time. But um, if you have a three-year relationship, people think, well, you really steeped in each other's skin. You knew yeah. them with like a clarity and a, an honesty and an authenticity that you would be able to carry with you all your life. Whereas a three-year friendship, people think, ah, oh, you're just still getting to know each other. It's yeah. very yeah, recent. Yeah. It's very, you know, embryonic in those stages. But I think with intense friendships, they're, they're just as powerful mm-hmm. as romantic relationships. So yeah, I wanted to keep talking to Scott and I wanted to use our paradigm for this friendship is a call to action for other friends to celebrate each other. I figured that was the most valuable thing I could do yeah. with this memory. I think there's something very important in what you said about this kind of um, investment in friendships, because there's a point at the moment. I mean, one of the, the, the final trip you went on together was a trip with Scott, but also with Holly, your partner. And so yeah. this is kind of quite an unusual setup in a way for yeah. sort of a, a couple to then go on holiday with uh, a single friend. Um, or at least, you know, friend alone. And it really struck me that this is something that we're not encouraged to do, probably, again, particularly as men, uh, is to invest in these friendships. And when I think of a lot of men of, let's say, our parents' generations, Mm -hmm. because of their work, because of their families, because of the direction they're led by society, a lot of them don't really have friends in the same way that they have friends when they're young. Yeah. And in the same way that a lot of women of the same generation do and have maintained those friendships. And and I, I think a big part of it is this question of investment. And that's mm-hmm. something we definitely find in, in your writing uh, about Scott from your side, but also from him, that the two of you were determined to cherish and to invest in this relationship. And if, if it... Uh, if it worked, it's in part because the chemistry was there, but also because of the decision you both taken and the dedication you both had. Yeah, I think so. I think you work for your friendships. Some of you, the friendships that scattered throughout your life are one of your biggest curated exhibitions of love in that mm-hmm. time. And a lot of times they're the ones that will perdure beyond romantic relationships. It's their arms you'll fall into during romantic heartbreak. Um, it's their stories that you'll tell to your new Mm. romantic partner to show them and to reveal them who you are as a human being and the hope that they'll love you and like you and want those little sparkling elements of you for yourselves so it was such a natural thing to then I I couldn't understand why people that had these like really beautiful friendships all of a sudden would then only go on holiday with their romantic partner there was something I just couldn't I couldn't foresee a more exciting situation than going on a, a, <laughs> a road trip with your sort of best friend and your romantic lover at the same time and just how important these people were to mm-hmm. each other. And I guess I've been very lucky in that I was surrounded by people who were really emotionally, emotionally adept at writing about their feelings. Mm-hmm. There was poets and songwriters amongst us and talking about them to try and hone down the, the language or the message or the... Uh, voyage that you wanted to go off in but uh, you invest so much in your friendships um, that to have times where you're not romantically involved with anyone um, to have friendships as the the main relationship the main buttress of sociality in your life to then see that fall by the wayside under mm-hmm. a romantic relationship because you're investing in in that and and the family and the, the growth of it just 
didn't seem feasible, didn't mm. seem a possibility for me at that point in time. And uh, I, uh, and it's it's just never the mold that, that, that took over me from that perspective. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. friendships had, had permeated my life so strongly that they needed to permeate my romantic relationship mm-hmm. as yeah. well. I needed. One of the things that, that means that this book is not depressing, but also one of the things I think that makes it m- particularly heartbreaking is the fact that you delight in the, the, let's say, I mean, silly isn't quite the word, but the kind of the funny, the sort of the frivolous stories, the things that, you know, whether that be over uh, a particular bottle of wine mm-hmm. that you that you shared or a particular experience you had on an aeroplane. I'm going to talk around them so as not to spoil the, yeah. the surprise of these stories or your love of the film with Nell and I, for example. Yeah. Like, that is sort of like this part of what makes a book fun. But also as a reader, it's that moment of realisation of, oh, yeah, and now there's just one of you around to to, to hold on to those, yeah. those memories in a sense. It puts me in mind of something which um, has come, been coming back to me quite a lot recently for different reasons, is that idea of you can't make a new old friend. Yeah. And once when you share something, you share these 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 special memories of someone and then that person is no longer there. That, in a sense, is the kind of the epitome of grief, in a way. Yeah, it's sort of these memories that become static mm-hmm. because the person that can fill in the blanks of them is no longer there. You're, you know, two pieces of puzzle trying to find a fit before you lose the shape of it all. So I guess maybe writing these memories down in such depth and with such vigour um, was my way of laminating them mm. and was my way of hoping hoping that they could then be used to galvanize other friends to do similar things or at least to be used as the impetus for friends to revisit some of their favorite memories so yeah i mean grief is just the final manifestation of love isn't it mm-hmm. you've got all this love to invest in someone um, to invest in the past of what you've had as well as the future and they're no longer there to put it into so where do you where do you put it and and for me it was it was down on the page as an impetus for friends to celebrate those friends that are still with them while we're lucky enough to have the opportunities to do so um it was a conversation that i didn't want to stop and had to find i guess a more inventive way of continuing Mm. to converse upon and um i admit there is there's bits in the stories where i can't remember and even the, even with the depth and divinity with which I steeped in some of the memories, it didn't come back to me. Mm-hmm. And Scott's the only one that could answer that. And it's unacceptable to mm-hmm. me that he's, he's not there to be able to, to fill in those blanks. So what do I do about it? And it's not gripe and it's not, um, you know, it's, it's not chagrin filled. It's not, you know, chiding at myself. It's creating something of a mystique around what's missing, uh-huh. turning it into a story, turning it into a conversation that I can pick up with, with someone else. And by talking about the movies you didn't watch together, as well mm-hmm. as the movies you did watch, you're, you're creating this whole, I guess, an alternative future to what that friendship could have seen uh-huh. from that perspective. Yeah. Um, so you can, you know, create new memories, even if they are fictional at those points in time, because you understand who both you were if you did fulfill these expectations, if you did watch this film together, if you did make that trip together. There is a version of that that exists in your mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wonder about the 
the expression of grief on the page as well because it strikes me that okay, grief is something which has been written about a lot and it's very easy I think to look at it and think of it in quite cliched ways in a sense because it's it is one of those things that is sort of is a, quite a common experience to to all of us but one thing that's quite striking is that you're clearly grappling with this idea of grief and not mm. not wanting to just allow it to be um something for which a particular formula of language or a particular expression sort of encapsulates and, and the reader will feel this when they when when they read the book it's just, you know you are not you're not going to borrow other people's formulas no. for talking for talking about Scott was that quite a quite a struggle for you in a way yeah, I guess I was denying its permanency mm-hmm. from a lot of perspective. And one of the last editorial notes I got on the book from my editor, Alexa, um, was, OK, I need a little snippet about physically what grief felt like mm-hmm. manifesting itself in the body. Wow. Um, and, I, and I wrote this little note, which I was like, well, I, I almost felt I didn't want to do it because it gave... It gave grief too big a platform. Grief mm-hmm. was like this side circumstance to explore these memories of joy. It was very much this, the the undercurrent to a lot of these stories. But I wanted this to be a celebration of friendship, not an exploration of grief. But there was a few moments where I just had to unashamedly converse with mm-hmm. grief, what it felt like inside my body, what it, um, the emotional and psychological places it took me to. Um, but it was very poetic mm-hmm. with how um, with how they made me feel, with the tangents they took me off. Um, started to think of the body as like a machine breaking down and all mm-hmm. of the different contraptions of us. It was the few times during the book that I just had to stop and candidly, without exception, converse mm-hmm. with the physicality and the emotionality and the psychology of grief. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I do definitely meander around them a lot of the time because... I do feel they're secondary to this narrative of joy, but there is a couple of take stock moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are um, coming to the end of this conversation. I think what I'd like to talk about um, to close is, I guess, this idea of closure, of catharsis. Now, one thing that comes across very clearly is that you are not done with this friendship with Scott. I mean, this is this is not like, OK, I've written a book I turn my back on this, I move on. Like, this is definitely something which will continue to to, to permeate your life going forward from now mm. on. But that said, was there something in the process of writing, in the process of the, the moment of finishing this book that did allow you some sort of catharsis connected to perhaps the way Scott left, connected to the the shock and the grief that 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 provoked? So it allowed me the privilege to invest more in the memories than I might have otherwise been able to. I probably would have talked people around me into saturation Mm -hmm. or into capitulation Mm -hmm. uh, because I wanted (laughs) to explore these memories with such a vigour and a depth that it would be quite all-consuming for someone else to be on the other Mm. end of them. So to be able to do that in book form was incredible. I don't think there was a finishing moment. In fact, very much the opposite. It's been a true galvanization of just how much I have to say on this topic. And Mm -hmm. it's another thing I'm thankful to Scott for, is being able to now 
uh, have let this fuse to continue this as a narrative. Like it very much doesn't stop here, which is the book that feels more like a conduit than a conclusion. Mm. Because the next things that are coming up in my life, I'm now starting this Good Grief Salon with Gemma Kearney, another writer. We did a pilot at the book festival last year. And now we're doing a second show. Me and Gemma are talking to different writers about mechanisms they have for grief, um, Mm -hmm. tips they have with grief, experiences for grief. That can be a recipe that they cook someone who's grieving. It can be a book they give to someone under those grieving circumstances. Um, Holly and Elizabeth Hanks and some writers did it with her last year. And now we've got Ocean Vuong doing Mm. it this year. Um, And Omar Musa, Australian Malaysian writer. Mm -hmm. So it's now... Through the writing of this book, it's given me this almost license to go on and to continue these conversations with people. And it's a narrative which I, at this point, don't see as having an end Mm -hmm. because, you see, it is this universal currency. It's so abstruse and unusual to feel that reluctant or trepidatious to talk about something which has affected everyone in the room. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, We start speaking about grief. There's nobody that can shrink away from it. There's no one that's not touched or changed their, the direction of their life or shape-shifted mm-hmm. at this point in time. Plus, there was this whole companion piece of poems which developed alongside Boyfriends, which is continuing to explore friendship and grief. And it's now uh, something I'm seeing that will manifest itself in, in, in fiction writing. So, yeah, the book has very much became a conduit from having some of the most sort of candid and, I think, vital conversations mm-hmm. that, I'll, that I'll ever have. And I think it will be, I'll be continuing to ameliorate those for, for, for years and years to come. So it's very much been a process of gratitude. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what I felt when this book had to be signed off because I could, I could have <laughs> kept talking about these memories forever. I think yeah. that becomes quite apparent in the writing. So <laughs> Never we, finished, only abandoned, right? <laughs> yeah. As we press stop, it was it was gratitude that came to ah, the fore. Yeah. And that sounds like such an important project you're doing with Gemma Kearney and the and boyfriend seems like such an important way uh, into that conversation for mm-hmm. For people who have um, have been looking for a way in, I guess. Yeah, it was like my collateral to get through the door to be able to have these conversations. And Gemma's writing a beautiful book at the moment, The Immortal Sisterhood, pro- mm. exploring a lot of great feminine heroes that are no longer with us as well. Yeah, so yeah. to have that sort of lexicon developing between us at a time where we both wanted to have these conversations on a, a wider, more mm-hmm. uh, generous and abundant scale was just a really auspicious happening that came into our lives at the same time so yeah it's it's a passport it's a conduit it's a sort of rocket ship into the the moon of all of these emotions Mm. (laughs) well boyfriends is available of course from shakespeare and company from the bricks and mortar store from our website um or from your local independent store bookstore wherever that may be even if it's in portobello bookstore which is in the site of the old uh, tackle shop that you were talking about earlier um michael thank you so much for for joining us today thank you very much adam it's been a privilege thank you for listening to the shakespeare and company podcast if you've enjoyed this conversation it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favorite app or just by sending the link to some of your friends And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. 
Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare & Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>